Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ciao e benvenuto to Spazzatura Sentimentale, the podcast where we talk about the chiclet that made us who we are. My name is Karen O'Donoghue and I'm fucking drunk. Joining me is author and the principal-elect of Mountain View School, Sarah Maria Griffin. Hello. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> How are so, um, you? Me and it's currently quarter to nine. We began this Zoom call at seven o'clock and because we had to catch up so much, we've had um, two and a half drinks. Nice drinks too, I feel like. We've been drinking like drinks with several ingredients. Yeah, we started on the old fashions and now we've smoothed into the beers. A level beer for a heady conversation, you know? Yeah. We're talking about Evening Class by Maeve Binchy and this is the re- your returning Binchy cast. Mm. Um, lots and lots of love has been had in the last sort of year and a bit since we did a live podcast at... Uh, Body and Soul Festival. Body and Soul, where we had our own adventure. We had a very long journey (laughs) to and from that festival. Shout out to Lucy, with whom we hitchhiked back to Dublin after our panel. Um, But a lot of love. I feel like that lovely conversation that we had has met a lot of people since. Completely. People often tell me that it's their favourite episode. And I'm really, really glad because... It's my favorite book that I've it's my favorite book that I've discovered through this podcast. And what was so nice about it as well is that um I think we both it came to us at very required moments in that we had kind of entered this moment where we thought the only way to be a young woman in fiction was to take things seriously and have no fun Mm. and it it was like this clatter around the head for both of us of being like oh you can have a laugh with your friends and it can still be literature there is allowed to be levity as well as complexity like circle of friends is one of those works that kind of exists with like a tremendously light hand but also holds a lot of depth and it genuinely changed the trajectory of my work, I feel. Like, on it's one of those moments, and I don't think they should happen often, rather than, you know, they don't happen often, but nor, no more should they, where something sort of stops you in your tracks and you go, oh, this is how it's meant to be. And I'm very grateful to it. Like, I, I feel like I learned a lot from it as a novel, and I do feel like I talk about it all the time. When people say, what should I read? I'm like, have you read Circle of Friends yet? Like, it's my first go-to to people to be like, I'm sorry, please stop pursuing contemporary fiction and go back and read Circle of Friends. Like, stop denying yourself this privilege, you know? Yeah, educate yourself. And like, the the, the first project I started after I finished Circle of Friends was um, All Our Hidden Gifts, which is a book that's coming out um, in a couple of months' time, which this is not a plug, but I named the main character Maeve after Maeve Binchy as a after reminder. Maeve, after the high priestess, Maeve Binchy. What a lovely link. I can't believe it was that long ago. Yeah, God. that's it. And 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 the and because there's in that book there's so many people just hanging out in cafes having chats, mm. even though there are big supernatural stakes, and I was like Never forget the cafe chat and the value of the cafe chat. And that's what Maeve Binchy teaches us. That's why she should be her own tarot card in the sort of spectrum of, of all literature. And yeah. 
the queen of the conversation. Like, and I feel like yeah. Evening Glass is a, is a book that literally narratively functions around covert conversations between people, right? Yes. You know, and it escalates towards tremendous covert conversations <laughs> around people. She lets people just kind of sit around and catch up and be frank with each other. And um, not in a wistful or deeply intellectual way, just in something, a phrase that she uses again and again in this book. And I think she uses a little bit, maybe it's, it's one of her Binchyisms, is that she said plainly. Yes, plain speakingness is the highest valued attribute in a Binchy character. Oh, like, where would you get it? And I completely understand what she means. Now, I, I was saying to Caroline earlier, and like, I, I, I can't underscore this enough. If you haven't read this book, or if you, like me, are struggling tremendously during this plague year with focus and attention... I listened to this book on audio and it's narrated by Kate Binchy. Is that is no relation or I feel like it's her I feel like it might be a daughter. I'm gonna double I'm gonna I, I double don't think she had this. children. Um, well maybe it's an, a niece or we'll find out I will find out momentarily. Uh, oh cousin, it's her cousin, it's her cousin, it's her cousin. But the voice of these books in audio form is tremendously comforting and I got a very strong sense of that value around plain speakingness and like Honesty would be too kind of, it'd be giving it too much weight to describe that kind of communication as honest. People just saying how they feel and saying what they mean as opposed to a duplicitousness or like a kind of a, it's very frank. It's very, it's, it's very straightforward mm. storytelling, do you know? And yeah. um, the stories that are told within the fiction are straightforward and therefore the story that you are told feels more straightforward even when it isn't, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So there's some lovely crossover in tone and whatever way that Kate Binchy intuits this story is very cozy. And because there's so many different threads and narratives, so many (laughs) characters and so many things going on, it feels like listening to a particularly gossipy friend laying out a landscape of other people's business, which I love. Completely. And it, it's that thing of like, it, it's, I, I this is my second Mae Binchy that I've read. The first one being Circle of Friends. Yeah, um, so we're on the same track with her, right? We're kind of both just skimming the surface right now. We're, so we're de- neither of us are scholars because there's a lot of material to work through there. But it seems that her, like Binchy's favorite thing is to give us, plop us into a character's head, into their story, into the things that makes their life hard or makes mm. their lives wonderful or whatever. And give us the full truth of that person. And then, like, let's see that person from a different point of view. Let's see them in their most piteous light and in their most noble light through other people. And she sort of loves looking at who's looking at who, you know? it's Yeah. She loves context and ensemble. And especially in this work, like, we see... um, I think it's seven characters from the the outset of their lives and their Mm -hmm. intertangled webs. It's one of those lovely books that reminds me that it's not just my imagination that everyone in Ireland knows everyone in Ireland. Do you know? <laughs> this is the worst thing. And I know you know this because when you live abroad... I, I, one time, this a friend of mine, she had um, an Irish boyfriend and she invited me over for dinner to meet her Irish boyfriend. And I remember feeling like, oh, wow, okay. You think I'm going to know your Irish boyfriend? And then lo and behold, I did. Our friend, our parents, our friends. Um, and it's just like, it's one of those things where like, yeah, we kind of do sort of know each other. There are two undeniable facts about Irishness on the international stage. And I lived abroad for three years and I felt this very intrinsically. One is that we sure do eat potatoes with everything. God fucking help me. 
no reasonable human being would put a baked potato alongside a lasagna other than in this country. <laughs> I was just about to say a potato yeah, with a lasagna. Always the lasagna. It's always the lasagna. And the other thing is that we all kind of know each other. And I think it's very beautiful. It's also terrifying. <laughs> and you'd want to have never treated another person badly in your life to get away with, you know, to move through peacefully. But I think this is a lovely sort of song to it. When I was when I was listening to it, I felt very much like it would make a very sophisticated Netflix anthology series because each of the narr- each of the characters' stories are so separate and then the the embroidery that pulls them all together is so lovely. You know, it's very it's done with a very light hand, you know, the way they encounter each other outside of everything and then the way the evening class becomes a centerpiece. You know, um, they all are very disparate people in the evening class and then are all slowly sort of threaded together. Now, she does make it very clear that the people who we encounter in the story aren't the only people in the evening class. It's 40 of them and we only see eight of them or so. I'm going to launch into the plot summary and then we can get into our comprehensive notes document. It's the dawn of the Celtic Tiger in early 90s Ireland and Nora O'Donoghue, name check, or Signora, as she likes to be known, is returning home after over 20 years away. Having spent her youth in Sicily in love with a married man, she has returned with no money, no friends, and no prospects. She begins teaching Italian at Mountain View School, where the beleaguered Aidan Dunn has just been passed over for the job of principal in favour of the womanising Tony O'Brien. Tony, meanwhile, is in love with Aidan's adult daughter, Gronia. The book follows every student in the evening class, I say every student, not every student, subtly changing each of their destinies and culminating with a trip to Italy at the end of the book. Um, and I think we should really land on that beginning of the Celtic Tiger energy because we have this amazing main character, uh, Nora O'Donoghue. I'm just, I've never seen another O'Donoghue in literature. It makes me very excited. Yeah. Um, it's your girl that's like a third cousin once removed man you gotta find her yeah where is she at um and she and like she really is um the sort of the the energy that brings all these people together and it is this sort of like age-old narrative of the kind of kindly witch who comes to the town dispensing her potions making the young people fall in love it's a a very um i i it reminded me a little bit of chocolat uh very charmed like it's a very worn narrative that is always very comfortable to put back on. And she leaves Ireland in the 60s to go to London, where she lives in sin to the disgrace of the other O'Donoghue's, who are very conservative people. Um, and she completely disgraces her family. This this man, Mario, who is engaged to be married to Gabriella back in his home of Sicily, says he can never marry her. She says she doesn't care. And she moves to Sicily to live opposite his hotel that he owns. And she stays there for 22 years and never for a moment regrets anything. She thinks she's deeply lucky to live opposite the man she loves, even though he only kind of crawled across the courtyard like two twice a month or whatever to to be with her. Even though people think that she's trash, even though they, like she thinks this is... A wonderful life. She can't believe she gets to live in Italy. She can't believe she gets to have real love. And I, this whole journey, I, it's incredible to me the way she, been she's written this this hero. Like she is a tremendous. Like she's a wonderful character. She, like I, I said to you that I feel like she sort of occupies this strange space between like chaste alien 
and also like somebody who is so impassioned and so transfixed by love that she would disgrace herself to her family and live as an outsider in a small Italian city in order to occupy and sorry a town not even a city and I've been well, I was actually in Sicily um pre uh Panadol that we're living under but I was there in the winter before the whole thing kicked off um we stayed outside of uh, one of the larger towns and it's a beautiful place as as Binji describes but it is small it is tight the streets are the streets are little the 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 windows are narrow like people look at each other there I can't imagine what her life must have been like like she places herself across the square directly from the man she loves and just vibes there waiting for him she's just like yeah everyone just thinks i'm this like mental irish fucking white woman who sews and sits in the window and is just happy out and uh she resigns herself so i don't know she becomes a sort of a town eccentric which is also nightmarish you know and her gratitude to it is so surreal to me that's the part of it to me that feels uh, fabulous or like fantastic is that she just doesn't push back against any of it because there is some awareness of patriarchy and there is some awareness of especially when we get into the more Dublin-centric chapters um with people like Connie and other characters who are kind of aware of how the world like worldly there is something otherworldly yes yes otherworldly is the right word for it and it but it's so the thing is is that when we're used to seeing rebellious women in in literature in culture in everything what we understand that to mean is that they are outspoken they have huge professional um ambitions that sort of supersede the time they live in they um they're knowing they're smart they're knowing they're smart they're quick they're, um, you know, they, they get people into their web and they're sort of like outmaneuver and all that kind of thing. What Signora Nora O'Donoghue is, is this character who's like so soft and so feminine and still and chill as hell and happy with the tiniest, like she lives in two rooms. Like her whole journey is living in ever increasingly smaller rooms and this sort of like gratitude and this sort of luck she feels. And there's also the sense of like, she doesn't care that the love isn't equitable. She doesn't need the love to be equitable. She, her love exists for her alone. It sustains her. She's like this plant that's able to sustain itself off the strength of her own love. It doesn't matter how well he loves her back. And there's something oddly like independent. And even though she's, so, she's followed this man halfway across the world to a place where she isn't welcome, the doesn't strident, speak the language. Doesn't speak the language. Obviously, foreign as a pale, red-haired woman in fucking Sicily, like, and that, and that difference is struck very clearly with her. You know, like, she occupies othership with this sort of peace, which is actually the peace is the unrealistic part of it for me. The piece is where it becomes, because Binchy described either this is such an ensemble work, it's it's almost Greek, you know, like there's loads of head the balls with loads of shit happening, life, death, you know, the whole the whole spectrum is covered here of existence, right? It's actually a book with incredible reach in terms of what it covers, in terms of what people in Ireland experience. But it's it, this isn't a failing on Binchy's part. Like Binchy's obviously deliberately portraying Nora as someone who's just 
vibing with unrequited love and is pretty happy to get dicked down by Mario every month or so whenever he crawls out across the moonlit square or non-moonlit square because he doesn't go out under the moon because he'd be seen whenever he creeps across in the dark to be with her she's like cool yeah I'm lucky enough to have this whatever there are other women within this text who hold men to extremely high account you know we, we cover the whole range of feminine romance, the whole range of different experiences and relationships that women have and the different standards they hold them to, both tragically low and excruciatingly high. This isn't a failing, it's not an accident or a, like, oops, I accidentally wrote a protagonist who is sort of unbelievably passive. There's a query in the passivity that Sonora has. Like, why, like, like she's like this for a reason. She does find satisfaction in her role. She is otherworldly. She is from a different time, you know, or something. She's like a, she's a really uncommon character. And also the social power that she holds when she returns to Ireland, ultimately in the narrative and begins these evening classes in this school, like she, and, and the the duty of death that she, that the others hold to her because of how she brought them together. Like there is something magical about her. Yes. Yeah. It's, it is, it is completely that. And I do have a theory, as you say, like, you know, Binchy's a, is a, she's a, a tarot card for a reason. She knows what she's doing, even though she's giving you these, like, happy little conversations in cafes and in squares. There's never a moment where she's letting the rain slip. And I do think that having this character who, like, bad things happen to. So she, even though she has this, like, life where people are quite awful to her, then, you know, Mario dies suddenly. The the, the All of Sicily basically says to her, thanks, but no thanks. And, you know, tells her to go home. It's harrowing stuff. I've got to tell you, I didn't see it coming a mile away. And, like, I know, as both of us have only, are both on our, our, our toe-to-toe binge journey, <laughs> that I maybe should have known that she is the CEO of the unpredictable automotive uh, accident after the, sh- the shock of our lives that we both got with Circle of Friends. Yeah. Didn't see it coming a mile away. She and was genuinely them. devastated. Had no, I had no idea idea where Nora's journey was gone but I certainly did not expect it to be ended so abruptly in a car accident now she alludes to it briefly with Mario being a bad driver but I just thought that was sort of a 90s Ireland generalization about Italian drivers um I do give Binchy a lot of like 90s Ireland leeway in terms of the observations she makes about people but um I did think that was like a real like someone's mom saying Ashley you know how the Italians drive and I'm like well you don't know you haven't met every Italian but what are you talking about I don't know what um so it was a little foreshadowing there about Mario's driving but um but this thing is though that the reason that she is this way that she can have these terrible things happen to her and people be awful to her her own family all this stuff and her to be basically still a pretty happy person is it's the whole like the light that is the message of this book is shone through this prism of this character, which is that life is hard and long and people are cruel and strange. And if you can carve out one small room or one tiny slot of the week where you can be different or feel different or feel better, then that is like, it's a thing of like, happiness isn't a thing you go out and get. It's a way of looking at things. And all of these characters that are focused in this novel, they ha- some of them have like absolutely grim backgrounds. And, and for many of them, their situations don't change. But what does change is that they learn, learn the sort of trick of how to be happy through this Italian class, through this woman. 
they give out they get the Italian class which happens at a prefab of a school and I get real nostalgic about prefabs oh, anybody yeah. who is educated in a weird building made of plywood that the, the, the cast of characters who we meet are from really diverse backgrounds one is a millionaire mm. so, you know like our, our Connie you know we love Connie we love and Connie. then one is somebody who has briefly led a life of a life conveniently adjacent to crime mm. you know like there's loads of different facets of Dublin life that are present within this evening class and we do learn all the ways that they were led there but ultimately being in that space gives them reprieve escape and pleasure like joy the joy of learning something new even for silly reason yeah for no reason yeah some of them kind of go in with this idea of like oh well if I learn Italian maybe I can get a job here or whatever but mostly right. it's just it's missing that and I god help me for invoke whenever I describe whenever I say millennial I feel like I've been bought and sold but you know what I mean <laughs> whenever I and I'm that person as well where I'm like if I learn a new skill I'm doing it so I can fucking better excuse me do we swear in this book? We do. We swear. Sorry, I got very aware of my... I was like, oh, I just said... Mm. But like, I get very aware of the fact that every new skill that I acquire is something I can sell. As opposed to, here's mm. a new skill that I have just because it makes me feel good. Yeah. And yeah. because this book is set in 1996, everyone's just there for their own... Like, some of them are there because they think it might help them with work. Like, uh, uh, Lizzie and... Um, Bill. Bill. Yeah, or Lisbetta and Giuliani. Giuliani, yeah, yeah. Um, like, but there's no sort of profiteering off of it. There's almost yeah. an innocence. Like, the evening class isn't anybody's side hustle. Yes, yes. And that is the thing of, like, why it's such a, a useful... A useful little tool that w we can tell how someone feels about all of life based on how they will react to their friend or relative being in the evening class. There's a lot of like, sure, they're not like, sure, what are you doing that for? Or sure, what is It's this like a for? dousing like, rod. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And this thing of like, yeah, it gives us this great indication of how easy or hard it is for that specific character to say out loud that they're pursuing another form of education and that is such a political thing in any society I think and especially there's a couple of characters who we get to know quite intimately who Binchy frames as being like a bit slow or not yeah. great in school or sure he hadn't much hope in a classroom which again I flinch sometimes when she talks about those things because that's how I existed within school because I'm just mm. like okay same all right uh, but you know she's trying to describe and she does adequate like in in this case it, it is something that i pull fault with because i'm just like just because they didn't exist well underneath the school system doesn't mean that they're not learners but of course yeah. it's 1926 so there's no conversations like that happening yeah. so lou or luigi and laddie or lorenzo Yes. are both described as people who are not particularly strong at school or quite bluntly as slow which is again mm -hmm. it, it again keep in mind I was listening to an audiobook so it's quite jarring to hear somebody else say that it's like mm -hmm. oh wow um yeah there are different levels of people being sort of like um learning disabled in this book yeah there there's a there's a, a spectrum of it there's a fair amount mm -hmm. of it you know but both of these men in particular find their way towards the evening class and find a pleasure there and find a joy in learning, you know, yeah. which they might not have been privy to otherwise or which the school system might have excluded and in Laddie's case, deliberately excluded him from. 
Yeah. You know? So I I like that a lot. I think it's like a lovely portrayal of a place where people can go and learn when they're taught in a way that's passionate and like exciting, you know? And there's a there's this thing that we keep bringing up as well, which is that and it's such a canny little writer's trick and it, and I was like when I read it I was like Oh, I see what you're doing, Maeve. I see it. Um, which is everyone has a different name in Italian class, which is like quite a common thing, right? Like language classes do that. It, it makes sense. Um, but when we put it in the spectrum of the of a novel, where sometimes characters are referred to by their Italian lesson name and sometimes by their real names, it shows this thing of being like they have this little slot where they literally get to be a different person, where you get to be. Lorenzo or Lisbetta or Giuliani or whatever you know and it's exciting and it's a person that doesn't exist yet and you can fill it with whoever you want and that it's is a clean a, slate which it's is a form of drag in a way you know yeah and that's something that like Sonora gets like she got her clean slate when she gave up her Irish name and people yeah. referred to her in this formality she makes that lovely exchange of giving everyone like a clean start so all the starts aren't necessarily clean. Everyone is there with motive and with muddiness and or everyone we meet. Um, it's not uncomplicated. Like Kathy is literally in the same room as her grandmother. Right? Oh, I forgot about that. And she yes. never knows. And there's never that connection is never made. We know as readers that she is in the same room as her paternal grandmother. But she never gets, like, we are given so many secrets that even at the end in the messy Italian holiday when everything seems to be cleared up, we as readers are given more secrets about what's going on in that room than the characters themselves, which is lovely, which is why I I keep kind of, when I've been talking about it during the week to to my husband, Carrie, I've been like, it's real gossipy, you know? I feel like I'm being let in on a load of secrets. It's like so Susie good. never knows about the massive boxes of pornography that Louis is keeping <laughs> for the guys, and he thinks it's heroin, but it's not. It's just porn magazines. Yeah, <laughs> like there's so much like like texture. Yeah, it's it's so beautiful, and like we because it's you, and because you have this uh, long history with spoken word as you do, I will never have you on a podcast and not make you read long tracks of literature. Oh, I will. Let's do it. Let's do it. It's been a long time. I take great pleasure in telling people I'm a retired spoken word performer. I, I'm just so sad I didn't know you in that period. I oh, think do you I know what, Caroline? I'm really glad you didn't. <laughs> you probably wouldn't have thought I was very cool. Uh, left on a high. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. 
For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So I'm going to read you from page 51 in my edition, which is also my mother's edition. So this is my mother's favorite May Finchie book as well, which is why I'm like very hesitant to be like, um, Sonora got dick poisoning from Mario and like you know Mama Griff will be listening oh absolutely I'm so sorry ma'am for saying that Sonora got dick poisoning from Mario but she did um, so yeah this is my mom's favourite Maeve Binchy book and when I told her that we were doing Circle of Friends the last time she's like oh you have to read Evening Glasses so um, hi ma'am I'm so sorry <laughs> <laughs> but look sure we all know what we know Uh so yeah, will I read for you? I'll read for you from my mum's edition, which is page yeah. fifty-one, where we're kind of getting to know a bit more about what Sonora is going through mm-hmm. outside of her romantic Italian existence. Sure. All right. She expressed sympathy for her father, who now spent much of his time in hospital. How right it had been for them to sell the farm and move to Dublin. And for mother, now struggling, they told her, to manage a flat left in Dublin. So often they had explained that the flat had an extra bedroom, and so often she ignored the information, only inquiring after her parents' health and wondering vaguely about the postal services, saying that she had written so regularly since 1969, and now here they were in the 80s, and yet her parents had never been able to reply to a letter. Surely... The only explanation was all the, was that all the letters must have gone astray. Brenda wrote a letter of high approval. Good girl yourself. You have them totally confused. I'd say you'll have a letter from your mother within the month. But stick to your guns. Don't come home for her. She wouldn't write unless she had to. The letter came and Signora's heart turned over at her mother's familiar writing. Yes, familiar even after all these years. She knew every word had been dictated by Helen and Rita. It skated over twelve years of silence, of obstinate refusal to reply to the beseechings of her lonely daughter overseas. It blamed most of it on your father's very doctrinaire attitudes towards morality. Signora smiled wanly to herself at the phrase. If she were to look at a writing pad for a hundred years, her mother could not have come up with such an expression. In the last paragraph, the letter said, Please come home, Nora. Come home and live with us. We will not interfere with your life, but we need you, otherwise we would not ask. And otherwise they would not have written, Signora thought to herself. She was surprised that she did not feel more bitter, but that all had passed now. She'd been through it when Brenda had written saying how they didn't care about her as a person, only as someone who would look after elderly and unbending parents. Here, in her peaceful life, she could afford to feel sorry for them. Compared to what she had in life, her own family had nothing at all. She wrote gently and explained that she could not come. If they had read her letters, they would realise how much she was needed here now. And that, of course, if they had let her know in the past that they wanted her as part of their life, she would have made plans not to get so involved in the life of this beautiful, peaceful place. But of course, how could she have known that they would call on her? They had never been in touch, and she was sure they would understand. And the years went on. 
Senora's hair got streaks of grey in the red, but unlike the dark women who surrounded her, it didn't seem to age her. Her hair just looked bleached by the sun. Gabriella looked matronly now. She sat at the desk at the hotel, her face heavier and rounder, her eyes much more beady than they were when they had flashed with jealousy across the piazza. Her sons were tall and difficult, no longer the little dark-eyed angels who did whatever they were asked to do. Probably Mario had gotten older too, but Signora didn't see it. He came to her room, less frequently, and often just to lie there with her, with his arm around her. Oh, such a good reading, Sarah. Thank you. Thank you. I'm doing an impression of Kate Binchy's intonation, who I have just been with, who has just told me this story. <laughs> Your friend Kate, yes. My, um, my, my big sister, Kate Binchy. Yeah. It's such a good reading. And it's so much about the book as well and about how much of the book is about caregiving and the expectation of caregiving and and motherhood and mothers you know yeah like gabriella who's mentioned there was mario so signora like had this affair nora had this affair with this italian lad who was like i love you this is great crack but i gotta marry this gabriella girl because our family's on a bunch of land in sicily so you know how it is Mm-hmm. so she's like okay I hear you but I don't care so he moves back to Sicily to be with Gabriella and then Signora rocks up on a bus and Mario's like look 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 Nora no go home this is not I told you I was never dishonest with you and to be fair he was never dishonest with her he did tell her he did tell her that he couldn't marry her he but she goes anyway and she lives there and like her mother rejects her and then we meet Gabriella briefly, who is Mario's wife, who is also a mother. Like, we have a lot of mothers in this work. You know, the characters who exist in the ensemble either obviously all have mothers or are mothers. And Binchy is not kind, generally, mm. on the mother as a figure in this book. Yes, and it's like, it, it feels to me as well, it's such a... And obviously, I'm sure every country has this in some way or another. And... I don't know why it seems to be such an Irish predilection of the thing of someone has to look after X. The farm or the parents, the land or the people. Or or the, you know, development, mentally dis- disabled sort of sibling or something. There is always this sense, and it's common in Irish literature, is like of people who have to give up on their dreams to look after other people and the kind of the resentments that form over that. And... What we, well, we actually don't get that much is the people who say no. The people who are like, I am like a quiet, like nice, dedicated, deep lady. And I say no to this. But yeah, the responsibilities are really, really complicated. Like, and people who refuse that responsibility and are just like, yeah, I'm happy. Whatever. I said no. See you later. Yeah. And that's a, that's a huge thing. And it's so harrowing as well because I feel like I've seen I've read a lot of books where the person does just kind of bow to the family pressure and this thing in this book of like they have no interest in her who they were ready to sort of throw her out with the rubbish and then just like as soon as the parents are kind of aging it's like hey you're gonna you are you over your strop now kind of thing are you gonna come back are you gonna like live in like pledge servitude to this and she's never forgiven for it and then when she does eventually go back to Dublin, she tries to sort of form this relationship with her family. And it's just there's... Oh, God. There's a terrible, terrible scene of her mother. She goes to see her mother and she hasn't seen her in fucking 25 years. And her mother won't budge in the doorway when she opens the door. Do you remember that yeah. bit? 
yeah, where her mother opens yeah. the door and she doesn't move to let her in. Like, yeah. details like that are tremendous. They're so hard to read as well. Like, she's just, like, blocking the door with her body. Now, she does eventually let her in, but there's a decided length of the conversation where the woman is blocking the door to the house. Yeah, it's hard. And this this constant thing of, like, needing to punish her further. And I, I want to know, and then maybe it has to do with Catholicism, Maybe it has to do with the weather. Like, why does Ireland hold on to spite like this? Because there's so much spite in this book and there's so much rigidity and so much people wanting to be loved so deeply, but they can't because of either spite or pride. I mean, even people like Connie, who again, Stan Connie, doesn't give a fuck. Like, she... Okay, Connie is a person who's in the evening class, who Mm -hmm. is a fancy lady with a terrible mother who becomes a receptionist when we go through her journey she becomes a receptionist in a hotel because her own father was a flanderer who played golf with a lot of fancy men including hotel owners and one of them employs her after his death and she marries an insurance guy who is fancy and has long hair which is a weird detail because tony who we meet earlier in the novel also has long hair she's got a weird long hair thing yeah yeah and also um the guy she marries is called harry kane after the tottenham football player (laughs) Which is fantastic. Like, what a great name. But it's also such a brilliant insurance fraud man name. Pre-Celtic yeah. Tiger level, you know. Harry Kane. Like, it's real West British. Um, yeah, totally. And uh, marries him. And for, I don't know, reading it from my perspective in the world, I was just like, she's not a queer woman. She denies explicitly or negates explicitly any of the many accusations that are made to her towards her through the novel of being gay but i do find her position on the sexual spectrum really interesting mm. um she does not enjoy or has no real interest in sex with him um so he begins a series of affairs her life continues throughout her chapter they become incredibly wealthy she's sort of like his at home wife and he has many affairs she bears children by him but, you know, they have a kind of an arrangement or something, like a, a, a situation yeah. going. So her mother is awful to her and won't, no matter what she does and no matter how well she behaves, her mother will never approve of her, right? Yeah. Um, and she, she seems like a pretty sound mum. You know, she seems to have kind of broken the cycle in terms of her children who have further relationships to people within the evening class. Um, another mother in the story is Fran, who um, oh, whose daughter Kathy. we are initially... And she, uh, Kathy is initially led to believe that Fran is her sister, but like so many families in Ireland, um, Fran had her very young, so was she was brought up as her sister. And the journey that we go through in that chapter, I think it's chapter four, um, is her discovering that her... Actually, Fran is a good mum, I think, in the story. Like, she's a really good mum. She's sort of the, the antidote to the bad mums. Um, but there are a lot of really, really complex mothers in this story. And unfortunately, Sonora's mother is like just icy and unforgiving and terrible in the same way that Connie's mother is. Maybe because we handle so many different generations of women in this book, we get to see the healing that happens across periods of time. And that's the thing that, does, that makes it not depressing, is that people are hurt by their mothers, but they don't keep hurting because of their mothers. And They that's... don't go on causing more hurt. Yeah like like yeah and this the specific thing with connie's mother it's like everyone everyone's mom is it's a it's the philip larkin poem right all over again you know fuck you up your mom and dad 
They fuck you up and everyone's sort of fuck uppery is slightly different. And the fuck uppery that exists in Connie's life is that extremely middle class fuck uppery that is obsessed with people talking about them, obsessed with people feeling sorry for you and obsessed with the notion of pride. And to the point where like she has a brain damaged Kathy with this notion of pride and like, oh, I'd hate if your father's old golf buddies were only just kind of looking down on us and da da da. And because the dad has lost all his money to gambling and he died very suddenly and left them all with these debts and it's become this sort of um this terrible thing and and this this thing of like that like you know i think is so recognizable where um connie has to rejig all of her future plans she was supposed to go to ucd now she has to do a secretarial thing and she come and she takes it really gamely and she's in her secretarial school she meets this pal um who was in school with her called vera and Vera kind of says to her like oh I'm so sorry to hear about your dad or whatever and he was he was a lovely man and Connie's like well he obviously wasn't a lovely man because he lost all the money in the gambling because Connie has imbibed this thing from her mother and Vera's like don't talk like that he loved you very much we all knew that and, da, da, da. and then Connie feels so good after this conversation with Vera that she writes to her mom being like I think if you opened up to people a bit more you would see that sympathy is something that's not worth sneering at And her mom comes back saying, I hope you're not blubbering away to all and sundry. And it's such, it's so middle-class Ireland. It is unbelievable of the idea of like telling people our problems is such a thing. And and it comes right back to what we said at the very top of this podcast, which is we really do all know each other here. And, And so the idea of having a front, especially if you have means, and because, let's face it, Catholic people in this country haven't had means that long. Uh, like, so the kind of want to to build a kind of a fortress around you is so deep. And the idea, and it's also the idea of money and status, which is like, this is the 90s. Money and status are kind of new inventions. And it's the mid-90s. Like, this book came yeah. out in 1996, so I would have been eight. Yeah. And... I came from an estate, not unlike the estates in Mountain mm. View. That now I, you know, using my little internal compass, it's fairly obvious that the estates that Binchy is describing is Tala. So mm. I came because if you can see the mountains, you're in Tala. Um, yeah. I came from the other side of the city, and I initially got my back up a little bit when she was sort of describing the working class characters. I was like, okay, maybe, mm-hmm. but you know, she's describing within character as opposed to from her own perspective, yeah. and. In some ways, her description of estate life is very accurate in terms of identical houses and small rooms mm-hmm. and everyone's parents smoke and, you know, like people smoking indoors in this book is a whole thing. My God, I gave up smoking last year and I was just like, oh, this is yeah, yeah. hard. Um, but there is definitely a people who have and people who don't have within this work. This is this is hugely a work about class because we also see rural life in Laddie's chapter, which was my least favorite chapter in the book. But he's, his, the, the concerns about money and finances within rural Ireland are very, very different to the concerns about money and finances within Dublin. Do you know? Mm. I think she introduces that very well when she talks about Sonora coming back to Dublin in the beginning of the book and being like, oh, look at all these young people. There's like 50% of the population is under 25. Like there was a yeah. very like, we have arrived in the Dublin, like she does a very good job of setting the world for, for, for the work here. But there is such a chasm between the propriety of Connie's mum and then of her own life within this sort of insurance fraud matrix that we read through. Mm. And then say, Louis, 
whose yeah. parents' shop is robbed when he is a child, and instead of repelling against crime, he's like, I fucking like this shit. Let's get in on this Robin Hood business and becomes loosely involved in like un- seedy underworld like yeah. mild gang Se- activity, you know. Seedy underworld in as much as it will ever appear in a book like this. As much as know? it will ever ever appear. But there is and Susie is a really fantastic character. She works in a cafe in Temple Bar and she's very present as a sort of an inter she doesn't get she doesn't actually get a chapter of her own but she appears in yeah. lots of other people's chapters as a sort of a interlocking stitch like she's coded man like she's really heavily coded as being like working class dub you know yeah like yeah. she wears and again i listened to the audiobook and there's a little accent shift there you know <laughs> little change you know and um, she's coded as having like being gorgeous and sensual, but also as wearing too much makeup. And yeah, like there's a at, at a certain point towards later in the novel, the code kind of falls apart, and she's her parents describe her as terrible things. I believe her mother calls her like what was it fast, and her dad calls her a slut. Yeah, and 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 the sort of the whole reason that we're introduced to Susie in the first place is because Signora has taken Susie's room in this estate. Because Susie's had to move out because her dad thinks she's a whore. Like, and yeah. she's sleeping with too many boys. Get out. Yeah, and it's it's sort of the last vestiges of old Ireland are like leaving its kind of fingerprints. And for the week that's in it, in 1996, the Magdalen laundries and mother and baby homes were still open. Still open. Yeah, yeah. You know, it wasn't until 1997 that those homes were closed. So the reality of not only just like public shaming or insensuality, but like incarceration. For women but this, is, this is something past. that Binchy is always and, and any 20th century Irish female novelist worth her salt not even worth mm. salt but like there's no such uh, thing as it existing let's be real like you have to yeah. you, you, the, the ghost is either with you or it's not yeah yeah that is and, and I think that generation of women authors who were above us who lived where we lived mm. um, they are all budding up with this thing Time and time again. And and even Maeve, who writes like these like quite comedic and light books, she'll never not be dealing with it. Like there's this there's this tiny little line in Connie's chapter where she says, um, the pill was still technically illegal in 1970, but it was legal to be prescribed if you had menstrual issues, and unsurprisingly, many women did have found themselves with irregular periods. I remember that really clearly. And again, in Laddie's chapter, Rose, his sister's experience is like in 1950s Ireland, a woman who found herself in a situation had three choices. Yeah. And the choices were uh, to become disgraced, to marry the father of the child, or I feel like the other one was also become disgraced. You know, (laughs) like there weren't any choices. Marriage, local disgrace, or sort of a more international disgrace. Like you go to London or something and you sort of scrap it all and take on a new name. Like she's very, like I expected when we went into this to be this like cracking up about Big Dick Tony and his 500 CD (laughs) collection. But I'm kind of glad that we took, because it is a, it's not a chill book, you know? Like there's a relationship that we're established with in the beginning. The person who founds the evening classes is a man called the most boring man in the world, Aiden. You hate Aiden. I. You think he's boring. I think he's depressing. Well, you know he is depressing. He's miserable. So the the, the novel begins with Aiden, and he's so depressing. He's so depressing. Like to the point where I was listening to it, and I was like, "Hold on." And when I read, I read the first chapter, and I think this is probably why I put it back down because I was just like, "I'm not invested." Um. 
because Aiden sucks. Now, everyone else in the novel is tremendous and Aiden lays the foundation for everyone else sucking and he's sort of part of the membrane that keeps them all together, not unlike Sonora. Um, mm-hmm. But he is just miserable. And there's a wonderful fiasco in which his eldest daughter, Grania, ends up in his actual relationship, emotional relationship, eventually gets married and has a kid with Tony, who is his rival for becoming Prince Tony. Of Fucking Tony. Tony, who's smoking fags in the corridors at school, oh. going for a pint at lunch and beating the shit out of kids. One icon. Everyone's, if everyone is afraid of a teacher in 1996, that's because he punched you in the face, man. Like, Tony yeah. is fully yeah. hitting And it. Tony doesn't like kids. He doesn't like teaching. And you can understand why Aiden is pretty annoyed that he's uh, gotten the principal job or whatever, which is the kind of the first drama of the book. Yeah, and you think this is the tone of the book. Yeah, you're reading like, am I going to hear about two middle-aged guys fighting over who gets to be principal of a shit school? <laughs> is that what this book is? That's the first really solid journey that we know and then it immediately tones, which is into Sonora's journey. But initially you're just like, am I really watching like a community school feud here? Now, of course, <laughs> it becomes way more exciting because to- Aiden hates Tony because he's virile. He's slightly <laughs> younger. He's slightly just like five years younger, that little kind of He's like 45, 46, right? Yeah, and Aiden Aiden's is like 49. 15. So it's like All that right. little, mm, just an edge. And he goes for pints on his lunch break and he smokes cigarettes and he's an arsehole and he doesn't give a fuck about his job and he's totally going to be head teacher. And also, he's fucking young ones the whole time. Yeah, he's got girls coming and going out of his flat. Because again, this book is really obsessed with interiors. And he has girls coming and going out of his apartment. And he has 500 jazz CDs. (laughs) He has so many jazz CDs. He also has like, later in the book, he describes his bookshelf as having Kerouac on it. And I was like, oh Oh lord. There are there are certain bits of this book, and I don't know why. Maybe it's because of the time period, but like it reminds me of um those kind of um readers that you Irish readers you'd have, and like Tony was going to a pop concert. Like it's that weird kind of thing of the the phrase pop concert is very like uh, reading comprehension in an Irish school textbook. Yeah, loving and... little linguistic quirks that kind of break through from educational texts and you're just like yes. CDs, jazz CDs. Like there's Yeah. Aiden was very impressed with Tony's collection of CDs. I'll tell you what, that is absolutely the way people talk before the internet, man. Like I think we just had yeah. Twitter poisoning. That is a hundred percent the way people talk before. Like I Stone Cold can tell you. But Tony's like this worldly motherfucker and he starts banging uh, Aiden's daughter. Who's like 21. He's like... Tw- so this is never a problem. Now again, this could be millennial brain, but I'm just like, this man is... This man is in his mid to late 40s. And granny is 21 and that is that somehow is not the problem well it is it is what's hilarious with granny is that like we get her and her friends and her sister the whole time and then being like your boyfriend is a (laughs) hundred i'm really glad that you're fucking an old man like they are to be fair actually yeah they are a bit just like your weird gross granddad that you fuck like they're very hard on her. <laughs> it's so funny and they're just like yeah you're gonna be like looking after him wiping his ass like, yeah they're, they're really mean they're actually we do get a really great chapter later on where all the gals kind of and like i love there's a chapter later on where we have a bunch of girls in their early 20s hanging out together and i'm like that's my move Benji. that's my yeah. fucking circle of friends bullshit of girls just sitting around saying weird shit to each other um yeah. 
But yeah, <laughs> the 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 Grania Tony relationship never made sense to me. And there's this lovely, you know, plot plotty kind of Agatha Christie nearly moment of like when all the threads come together and she realizes that Aiden works her sorry her dad Aiden has lost out on this huge job to her boyfriend Tony, and she's just like I she just she just can't handle it, man. And she walks away from him for a long time. Their relationship is really compelling. Like I don't like. You know, I think it's probably like I if it was somebody if I knew a Grania and she was doing it, I would also slag her and be like, get out of there, man. What are you doing with this lad? Uh, but as the stories in the novel go, it's a lovely narrative thread. Like it's I guess for me, so there are some stories in this book because there are so many stories, the city of stories in this book. Um, we haven't even named half the characters, I would say at this point, so many people. But there are some stories in this book which act functionally and some which act emotionally and I think for me Tony and Grania's story is a functional story yes I yeah it's not a romance I care particularly about he's just like oh I love you I bought you a coffee machine and I'll write you postcards every week that say coffee waiting for you Grania like, Do you know what it reminded me of? The him writing her postcards every week in the coffee machine. That bit in the Sex in the City movie where like Big's big sort of gesture is that he writes her emails. <laughs> and he like copies out letters from Napoleon. Ever mine, ever thine, ever ours. I'm obsessed with bloody um I'm obsessed with Bill and Lizzie. And do you think well you think? Normie bankheads, the bank lads. Bank, the thing that Binchy is so accurate in depicting is the bank heads. Because that is such an institution. My my sister is always talking about how she was the last generation for whom getting a job in the bank out of school meant something. Like she thought, so she like, you know, 22 or whatever, got a job in AIB. And then like two years later, the recession hit. And she was like, what happened to this incredibly upwardly mobile job that was supposed to have been like indicative of like what it meant in the 20th century in Ireland to have a girl working in the bank? Like, you know, and like that, that, that I've lived here for 10 years now in England and I don't hear people talking about capital T, capital B, the bank in no. the same way. No. And I don't, and I wonder why that is. Is it just because the very small amount of jobs available in the sort of white collar world in Ireland throughout that sort of early 20th period? I think it's because the bank became, instead of an institution of power, became an institute of betrayal within the Celtic Tiger. I think because of what happened yeah. with the bank in the Celtic Tiger in terms of like how it, you know, fucked everyone. Um, there's something less glamorous or less honest about bank work. Perceptively, yeah. no, I wouldn't meet somebody who I would like, that's a cool job. Do you know what I mean? I wouldn't make any of those judgments, but I do think in terms of cultural yeah. cash, they're C-A-C-H-E. I think there's a change, mm-hmm. do you know? In cha- same with insurance, yeah. do you know? Like, totally. Uh, what those... And I also think that there is a big, bigger cultural focus away from the stable job in terms of something like... I think there's a bigger focus on the gig economy now, you know? Does that make sense? Like, there's a, such a big shift... Such a huge shift, and I do. I want to also make totally clear that I'm not saying that people. I I think people are working banks are dishonest, like absolutely not. But I'm saying after the Celtic Tiger and the whole banking crisis that happened, there was absolutely a shift in 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 people's perception of people who work within banking. Do you know? 
But I, I do think there's this thing and, I, and I've sort of seen when I like zoom out and look at the history of sort of like my own family of like there being like so little like white collar work available to a certain level of like, um, you know, Catholic middle class or whatever. And that, like, to ha- like that, that there was that kind of thing in the sort of mid to late 20th century of like if you had someone, if you, your family started on a farm or on a sort of a kind of outer city laborer kind of way and then to have somebody in the bank capital T capital B the bank um it is this thing of like you have readjusted the stars of this family and this thing and there's this thing uh, consistently and we get it in Bill's chapter where he he looks at other guys and other situations and he's like they wouldn't have found it as easy to get a job in the bank. And it's never, you, it doesn't matter which bank, it's this always is the bank. something my parents used to always say to me about why I shouldn't get visible tattoos. Mm-hmm. It's because yes. I would never get a job in a bank. Yeah. No, the, the realistically, bank. having <laughs> there was a very little fucking chance of me and my fucking lack of ability to add numbers together that I would ever yeah. get a job in a bank. But it was something that I remember being very clearly said to me, you never get a job in a bank if you have a tattoo that anyone can see. And how, how are you going to change the, the family's fates if you're not going to get a job in the bank? Because there's no other avenue, you know? Now, I think the contemporary... I'm interested in the shift in terms of Irish culture towards... Now, I think... I don't know if people have clocked yet that that... I think class transition is very complicated. And having mm. kind of... Being navigating it myself, I'm, I'm interested in it. I find it difficult to talk about. I'm not wise up on it. I'm not fully at home talking about class, class transition. Um... Mm. But when there is a shift that happens, um, I, I think that Irish people don't quite yet have the foothold within tech as being the contemporary version of what the banks were in the 90s. And ultimately, in fact, they've already, tech has already failed us, but like, ultimately tech will become sus in the same way that the banks are sus. Do you know? Mm. Like the great white hope in the 90s might have been, Asher, she went and got a job in a bank. Now... I feel like, oh my God, do you hear it? She's working at Facebook. She's working she works in Google. Now, yourself and myself know that a job in Google or a job in Facebook, there's many different kinds of fucking jobs you can work at in tech. And mm. I personally wouldn't, I've tried. I was no good at any of them. Um, but like, there's lots of different kinds of tech you can work in, da, 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 da. But working in tech is also a societal elevation. It's a change in the same way that working in the banks might have it been is. in the 90s. Do you know? And again, it'll it's, fall it's, and things will change. Yeah, it's very true. I feel like because a lot of the audience um, for this podcast is English, I should say that like this is not something most people who don't have an Irish person in their life grasp. Is that like, you know, we were how do you, how do you boil down the history of a country in five seconds while you're three drinks deep? But we were you know as everyone knows heavily agrarian and labourer society. Colonized. Adapted to, uh, yet yeah, colonized, adapted to white collar work. And then the sort of nine, early 90s, 80s, the beginning of the, what we what we refer to as the Celtic Tiger. And I'm only now realizing that a lot of my audience won't understand what I mean by the Celtic Tiger, which is what I, which is what Ireland refers to is this period of extreme economic fecundity that happened in the 90s and continued throughout until 2008. A historical. When you consider that in the 1970s, Ireland was a third world country. Yeah, yeah, totally. People would fundraise to like starving children in Ireland. Do you know what I mean? And um, 
you know, you and I uh, are people who will be studied for a long time because in, in terms of like our age group, because we're the Celtic Cubs, we're the people who were brought into uh, economically sound Ireland who never existed before. We are this kind of children who were born into this very but odd bracket. But I'll tell you what, the two years between you and me with the Celtic Tiger is a weird one mm-hmm. because I graduated into the dawn of the recession. My dad was a civil servant um, and uh, I remember when it was about to go wrong. When I worked yeah. when I was 15, I worked in a bar and then I worked, you name it, I've done it, but I worked in a bar um, from when I was very young um, and at the end, towards the end of my time in college, my dad, who worked as a civil servant, sat me down at the kitchen table and he's a fucking brilliant man for explaining things. He got like a salt and pepper shaker in the sugar bowl and he kind of laid out this sort of like, and here's the banks and here's Europe and here's this. And this is how mortgages work. And this is how debt works. And he, on a couple of napkins, explained what was about to happen with our recession to me. He did the big short. Wow. On the wow. table. Wow. Wow. And I sat, I remember, I will, Caroline, I will never forget it. It was leading up to, and that's why you are not going to have as many shifts in GameStop anymore. Like that kind of thing. <laughs> like it was just like, you're, wow. you want to hold on to your fucking job because there's not going to be any more jobs. Because I was a little bitch who would just hop from job to job because there were so many jobs. Mm. So I was part-time here. I had three jobs at once. I just did a few hours, left the job, whatever. I didn't give a fuck. Like my CV's a mile mm. long. Like genuinely, I have worked in every shop going because I get bored and I'd go and learn something else. But mm. my dad was like, you really need to stop hopping jobs because there aren't yeah. going to be any. And he explained to me how the economy was about to fucking collapse. And I was just... And it did, it did. And it did, but I was a little bollocks and didn't listen to him and didn't care because I was... If I as an adult could like astral project myself back into that conversation, I would absorb every word out of his mouth because he told me exactly what was going to happen. Um... And this book was written in 1996, so it's sort of at the height, not the height, but like it's 10 years before the crash, so it's sort of at the upswing? Yeah, no, it's in, it's in the complete upswing, and it's in, the, it's in the beginning of like huge upward mobility, and it's like, and this, this moment where Signora is coming back to Dublin, and she's like, there's young people everywhere, there's cafes everywhere, and the first conversation she has in Dublin is with Susie, and, uh, and she says to her, she's like, look, I'm looking for work, and... Already there is this crunch on the kind of people who can get kinds of work. And this is, it's already changing, right? You're too and old, she says, you're too this, you're too yeah. that, yeah. She says something to her like, you know, what if I were just to, you know, work in a restaurant and live in some pokey flat above? And Susie says, we all want those jobs. Like Temple Bar, right? She's like, this seems Temple like a very Bar. nice area. Might I live here? And Susie's like, are you for fucking real? You know, yeah, like... Yeah everyone wants to fucking live here and I think she makes a remark about Quentin's where her childhood friend works and she's like I'd love to fucking yeah. work in Quentin's which is another Maeve Binchy novel in the wider Maeve Binchy universe yes it is in the in the Binchyverse in Binchyverse um, so it's already very clear in Ireland in 1996 that there are good restaurant jobs and bad restaurant jobs which I feel like up until yeah. that point wasn't a whole thing and this it's funny because people have things for the first time in this in and people this and the people who don't have things or people who choose yeah. to spend their income in different ways are really starkly 
Like there's so much judgment around smokers, people who smoke and people who drink within this book in terms of how people judge each other. Like the women who mm. smoke in this book are very, again, I'm three drinks deep, not unlike yourself and itching for a cigarette, often nearly a year. Mm-hmm. But like there's a, and listening to it and the descriptions of smokers, none of them are attractive. Like it's all like women kind of walking out into the rain with cigarette butts in their mouths. Like yes. it's really unattractive, yeah. but it's also very coded towards a class issue. You know, like there are definitely two Dublins in this work and the one that... And a lot of it is about the collision of that Dublin as well, of those two Dublins. The class itself is a collision. Yeah, you're dead Yeah, right. it's a class collision. <laughs> yeah. And there's this thing as well of like, you know, we've got Kathy and Fran, who we mentioned earlier on, who were the, um, the, the young mother who's sort of masqueraded as a sister. And I love them. And they're so heartbreaking. They're, they're, they're gorgeous. I had a big, I I am sort of, I've read this already, but um, I sort of alternated between reading on paperback and having the Kate Binchy in my um, ear today. And I was just walking around weeping openly as this thing where sort of, um, so Kathy discovers that her, her, her mother is her sister and she had this romance and she was eff- effectively bought off by a middle-class family. Four grand, a lot of fucking money four, in the 90s, man. You know, grand, in the 80s. Yeah. The 80s in this, yeah, which would have been in the middle of another Irish recession, right? Yeah, the 88 um, one, yeah. We've all heard about the butter vouchers. Um, but then she sort of, um, she goes and meets her father and his, he's like this fancy accountant. Yo, he's cool as a fucking this... cucumber as well. Like, he's so I sus. I hate him. I hate him. He's so like... Even though nothing bad happens with him, I was waiting for something bad to happen with him. Yes, it was in the air like something like he's just like I'm delighted to meet you I can't wait for you to meet my wife he had the deep tangible smugness of a motherfucker who got away with it and poor Fran working in the fucking supermarket living with her parents in a council house like that disparity and that that calm that he has is so indicative of a person who just for him his impregnating a teenage girl and like the baby existing, it's just like, oh, sure, that was a whole fiasco that we had a couple of years ago. Whereas Fran is there being like, I just had to tell a 16 year old that I was her mother instead of her sister. Yeah. And now I'm off to my night shift to the supermarket. Yeah. Like what? Like The disparity in their lives is actually very, it's very brutal. But again, Binchy handles a lot of brutality in this novel with an incredibly light hand. She really does. And there's this, this moment where like, and Fran is the sort of, one of these characters in the book that acts as like a North Star where she sort of often is like, she's so like logical and kind. And she's one of the people that we as the reader look to, to be like, you're, you're our safe pair of hands and how you're reacting is how I should be reacting. But, the, but Fran breaks with that when she sort of likes, they're on their way to the evening class and she sort of says like, you know, he, he's got tennis courts and swimming pools and stuff and I'm scrimping and saving to bring you to an evening class. And it's this thing. And that's why the, the thing of the evening class is so effective, which is that it can seem so huge and so small in the shit and so pathetic in the, in the, she says something, the dad says something, I think what's his name? Malloy, something Malloy, uh, Paul, so many characters. Malone. I think Malone. Malone. We've done a really great job at actually keeping track of everybody so far, I think. But the, the, the dad, who only appears briefly, says to Cathy on the phone at one point, things will be different from now on. Different and better. And unfortunately, Cathy makes the mistake of saying that to her mother. You know, what is different and better? 
different and better from this you know and Kathy's very worldly and very copped on but like there's these lovely again Binchy handles it handles this so well where she makes a character really confident about their behavior until they deliver a truth and then reality crushes around you know and like she does that a bit with Fiona like Fiona who is our ends up being the sort of she's not the god in the machine like if there was a god in the machine in this book it would be Fiona because we meet Fiona early on like we mentioned earlier on that um in the beginning of like on our journey of gradually kind of trying to describe this story Grania who is Aiden's daughter who's banging Tony with the 500 CDs Grania when she tell when Grania tells her parents that she's you know out on the town for a night, she says she's staying with her friend Fiona, which is sort of an accepted family code for getting dicked down. And let's not talk about it. Um, <laughs> and you think initially for a good heft of the novel that Fiona is sort of we're never going to meet Fiona. Fiona's just kind of a throwaway. Yeah, and if there's one thing we should know about Maeve Vinci after reading Circle of Friends is that there are no throwaway characters. There are no small parts, there are only no small, small parts, actors. only small actors. And we, we spend a long time with Fiona towards the end of the novel, who is, you know, she's very different from a lot of the other women in the novel and that she has no idea what she wants. She's just not worldly. She's goofy, fucking... She's a virgin. She is indecisive. And she, like, also ends up being the harbinger of uh, justice. She just yeah. fucking says shit, you know? Like... She just says what she wants. She changes things. She might be the witch in the story. You know? Like, Sonora is one kind of witch, but Fiona is a different kind of witch. Like, Fiona yeah. is sort of, like, virgin, literally virginal, innocent, works in the cafe in the hospital, meets Barry, who works in the supermarket with Fran, da da da, da web of connections. Mm-hmm. Like, miraculously, through the art of conversation, apparently heals his mother from being desperately mentally ill. Um, which I thought was a little bit yep. a little bit of a kind of a soft focus there Very on that um, she simply did not want to commit suicide anymore I simply enjoyed your company too much yeah I was like you know what we're gonna go like I'm just gonna go with this with you you know I'm, I'm, I will yeah. go wherever Maeve leads me let's be real mm-hmm. but yeah. Fiona's gift especially in the final chapters where we're in Italy um, and everything goes to kind of hell and heaven in a handbasket is that she just tells people the truth Fiona has when we meet her admittedly and she says this and it said to her no fucking personality and then at a <laughs> yeah she doesn't point, know what she likes and, yeah. the, and the, the Grania and the sister Brenda Bridget Bridget sit down and are like you're fucking boring you have no personality so very shortly thereafter that blunt conversation Fiona's like well I actually shall have a conversation and my conversation shall be that I say whatever I think and feel so she goes around bestowing the truth and then resolving some of the much deeper problems in the novel you know so she's a different kind of witch in the story like there are not a lot of magic makers in this story because there and there are many many characters and not all of them create magic a lot of them are very very passive and a lot of them are tragically passive and weirdly fiona i think acts as a sort of counterpart to sonora right where sonora is sort of wise and older and sensual and like follows the rhythm of her desire to italy and back and is very sure whereas fiona's unsureness ends up being this deeply restorative force in the lives of everyone she encounters within the evening class like it's uh there's a lovely balance to them i want to i want to talk about the italy in general oh, in this book and look, i'm very glad it was italy because if it had been anywhere else in the world i would have been just like this is mm. but i think 
the thing that we forget as well, and something that I'm constantly reminded of um, by my family because of their attachment to it, which I'll get into, is um, Italia 90. And of course, it's a really huge part of this book. It's, it's a huge part of yes. this book. But like, just in the, in the exact same way in that the Celtic Tiger will be completely alien to so many of my listeners here. Um, Italia 90 will also be an alien concept. Mm. Um, but in 1990, Ireland got to the quarterfinals of the World Cup that took place in Rome that year. And it became known throughout the nation as Italia 90. And like I was born that year. Ah, you're an Italian 90 baby. Oh my God. I'm an Italian 90 baby. And also when I was a very, very, very small baby, my father, through some kind of business connection he had through the bank. The um, bank. <laughs> the bank. Repping the bank. Um, was, uh, I can't remember the exact details of this, but basically someone said, we have a private flight going and there's a seat for you on it to the yes. quarterfinals. Yes. Once in a lifetime unbelievable thing and then the plane on the way back crashed into a golf course and my father was almost killed (laughs) every so often you dispense me a story about your dad and I'm just like (laughs) between this and the fucking Richard Branson thing I just yeah (laughs) that's terrifying Uh, FYI my my dad was invited to a threesome by Richard Branson in the 70s (laughs) that is like yeah God love him. That's terrifying. He's a he's a rogue historical figure. My dad. He's like a real. He appears places. He disappears once again. He's like um, a time traveler. Like that's terrifying. And yes, but Italian ninety has always been this huge shadow that exists over um, anyone who was alive that remembers that period of time of this thing. And it it, it really I actually refer to it in my new book because. It, Everyone, because I'm the youngest of four kids, and everyone remembers that time of like, there was this huge period of depression with the 80s, and it was just the beginning of an emergence, and it was like the beginning of all hope again, of like Ireland taking a place somewhere on the world stage that wasn't fucking embarrassing. And people were happy to see us. Italian 90 was huge, is the long and short of it. My mom has like t-shirts that were like on two-year-old Sarah you know yeah like from that it was, time it was enormous and like I, once again addressing the sort of mostly english audience here i feel like they will never quite know what it feels like to be from a tiny country and to have yourself exhibited on the world stage for a good reason and for a legitimate like I, reason and an accurate reason yeah. it feels like it represents us as opposed to some sort of a weird projection of our identity which is false or informed by colonialism Exactly. And and like you've lived abroad as an Irish person, you know what this feels like. The weeks where there is a good news story that puts you on the world stage versus the weeks when there's a bad news story. I lived in the States you know? when Savita died, you know, I lived in the States. I lived here when I was my first like couple of months here when Savita died. And I remember hanging my head and like feeling so less when those when you're from a small country and you're in a different country. And you're trying to explain big, what this yeah. huge like there's women handcuffing themselves to the government buildings like when you're trying to explain yeah. this context it just gets lost and I had these I was an intern unpaid intern at that time and I was trying to explain to these Californian women and they were just kind of looking at me like I was an alien and I was like absolutely I'm never trying this again do you know like situating yourself as an Irish yeah. person in an international context on one hand we have a tremendous amount of privilege because we're largely enjoyed as a people we're enjoyed and also we're white I mean, a lot of us are white. Like, largely, like, largely white people, do you know? 
so when you have that cocktail of Irishness and whiteness, you're like, for in my experience, again, I lived on the West Coast, not the East Coast, so I didn't have any sort of the Boston Irish thing. Yeah. I largely experienced a great deal of privilege and I got away with a lot of things that I know I wouldn't have other got. Like, I was very acutely aware of it at all time. I also had red hair down to my ribcage. Like, I was a mm-hmm. walking leprechaun. Do you know what I mean? It wasn't accidental. Yeah. Ireland, at this time, period of time, when this um, novel is written feeling this spiritual kinship with Italy because they're two Catholic countries, because it's two patriarchal countries, because the Pope is from there and because we were just here with Italian 90. And some of the characters in the book had gone to Rome to support the lads. And yeah, like, yeah. One and, Barry, and we went back to look for his lads in the bar. Yeah, went, yeah. We went back to look for his lads. Like, and this kind of sense of like, oh, if I walk into you know, the same bar in Rome, I'm, I'm sure I'll meet the same guys again. So there's a lot of, it's a, Jesus, it's a huge novel, isn't it, Caroline? Like, it's, it's much huge. bigger than we think. Like, it's so odd to try and tackle it because it's, no fucking uh, Circle of Friends is 700 pages long. And this is like a meager 408 in return, right? In my copy. Yeah. Like, it's really, it's a robust paperback. But the multitudes of stories that Binchy is holding in this space and conducting, and again, some of them don't survive the benefit of time. Like, I do have... Um, I got my back up a bit with the class thing. I did find some of her descriptions of people who have disabilities as kind of... A bit retrograde, yeah. I also think there's a slight, with the class stuff, there's a little bit of um, whatever the class version of white saviorism is. This kind of thing of like, you know, everyone in this estate is grim, but this cute witch lady who loves embroidery has made your life worth living again. As if... Rescued they by rise. education as opposed, you know, like there's, yeah. mm, there's some grey yeah. areas. But again, I don't, when I read work like this, I don't want to sit here with my aggressive critical theory goggles on. Yeah, I want yeah. for one minute of my life to take them off and feel as though I'm meeting a cast of characters and feel as though I belong to a different world. And again, I recognise that that's a luxury to be able to just go, well, sure, look, we'll just hang around mm. with these head the balls. And... I think again, similarly to Circle, though this is book, this book couldn't be further from Circle of Friends in so many ways. I do think that Binchy's gift for bringing you somewhere and for making you feel as though you're being related a story by a deeply kind person is mm. it's 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 nakedly present. Like when I go I to this what, work, I want to feel like someone kind is telling me an interesting story. Yeah, and and the thing that I'll always appreciate about Maeve is that she cares about everybody you know and that's such a there's a way home for everyone everyone's redeemable and like there's you know no small no small characters just small actors you know yeah, it's no small characters like this is such a gorgeous read like I would push this into hands people I'm glad it's my mom's favorite book I why, feel like why I... do you think it is your mom's favorite book uh, to me it's like I, I'm, I don't love it the way I love Circle of Friends but I but Definitely I still enjoyed it, it so, and, I, and yeah, it makes me want yeah. to go towards Echoes and Penny Candle. Like I still want to go yeah. on a binchy voyage, preferably with you. And oh yeah, out. I think one, once a year we'll have a binchy voyage. Yeah, you know, I really like that. Once a year, forever. See how we go, you know. <laughs> forever like, till we get <laughs> just till we've done them all, right? Till we're old. Um, I don't know why this is my mom's favorite favorite book. I must ask her, but I feel like it's because it's lots of different people. You know, my mom is very yeah. empathic and like curious and shy and quiet and like very unlike me in lots of other ways but uh, especially when I was canvassing her canvassing with her for repeal 
I learned a lot about her and um, I think she is interested in people in a way that isn't extroverted and I think that this book satisfies Mm. something for people who might be very interested in people but don't want to be in the center of their lives like you you see a uh, in video games they call it a perfect slice you know you slice down the middle of the cake and you can just see every oh. layer and you can see all the bubbles and you can see the icing it's like a perfect yes. slice of everything do we have any parting words on this parting words good dick is a trap don't move to italy for anybody and um, good dick will <laughs> imprison you and mean that you'll have to sit in a window embroidering a weird quilt forever while your man gets married to a local hotelier um, maybe you want that maybe you she want that did. chase your bliss but mm. um maybe it's okay to just want a tiny room that's pretty great uh like i always want a tiny room tiny rooms are good um yeah and um you know 500 cds you know you know 500 500 cds might not be a bad idea (laughs) have you have you simply considered 500 cds worried about girls have you considered 500 cds and one copy of jack kerouac's on the road well let me tell you about a man named tony before we go, can I tell everybody your Italian class name? So this is your challenge to your listeners. Is like, what is your evening class Italian language name? It can't be a direct translation of your name because that would be far too simple. That would be boring because if it was direct, I think we would just be Sara and Carolina. Carolina is literally your Italian name. But nobody yeah. in evening classes is called straight just their name. Normal. It's always some yeah. kind of approximation. So I went back and I figured out what Caroline's name meant, which was free man. It's the feminization of Carl or Charles. And so, Car- yeah, Caroline means free man. So we're going to change that to free woman in Italian because you're a woman. Um, so your insane Mountain View Italian class name is Gratuita Donna. Free woman. Gratuita Donna. Uh, Gratuita Donna. Welcome to our evening class. And because Sarah is from uh, the root word princess, my name is Principessa. Principessa. <laughs> Principessa. So I would encourage you to go and seek out your obscure uh, Maeve Binchy's uh, Mountain View evening class name. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> oh, well, ciao, Bella. Oh, ciao, Bella. Ti amo. This has been Sentimental Garbage, and I've been Karen O'Donoghue. You can follow me on Twitter at Zaraline, that's C-Z-A-R-O-L-I-N-E, or email me by the podcast at ZaralineO'Donoghue at gmail.com. This has been a Justice for Dumb Women podcast. Thanks to Harry Harris for the jingle, Gavin Dave for the logo, and Acast for the recording space. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.